You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. The ministry of Stephen. We're going to be looking at Stephen. Uh, somebody that we maybe know as, maybe we know of. Uh, we might be a little bit familiar with him as he's the first martyr of the church. Maybe some of you uh, are aware of that. He's the first martyr in the church. Um, and, and yet he provides a, a beautiful transition. For last week, we, we celebrated Pentecost Sunday. Remember that? Uh, Pentecost Sunday, we talked uh, a great deal about the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, I didn't cover everything in that, obviously, but we, we, we covered a, a good deal of what the nature of the Holy Spirit is uh, throughout the scripture, and especially as it is poured out on the church there in Acts chapter two. And then in Acts chapter six and seven, we see somewhat of a transition with, as Stephen is really um, the first martyr and the persecution upon the church really becomes very uh, challenging and hard. And, and Stephen is preaching this message of, of transition, that the, the world is changing, the temple is changing, the spirit has come, and the gospel's going to be going out to the ends of the earth. And he's challenging the Jewish leaders at that time, are you ready for this? And they were not ready for it, and they murdered him and stoned him. And so we're gonna be looking at, at kind of this overview, I guess you would. We're gonna be walking through the passage. I'm gonna try to do a long story short here in Stephen's life uh, through Acts six and seven as we walk through what's happening. And I do think it's fitting, again, for Memorial Day weekend as we look back and we memorialize a variety of things in the past to help us remember what, how it started, where we came from, the sacrifice that was spent and paid for for our freedoms now. And as we look in church history, we can look all the way back to the book of Acts, which is the history of the beginning of the church and the movement of the Holy Spirit, you can look at somebody like Stephen, who was the first martyr, this person who, who gave his life uh, for preaching the gospel and teaching the truth and spreading the kingdom of God. And so we look back and we see his life is almost like a memorial. It's a memorial of sorts that reminds us of the, the blood that was spilt, the lives that were given in order for the church to be what it is today. And as we look at the history of the great nation in which we live, the opportunities that we have here, we look at all the lives that were given and the memorials that lead us to be where we are today. And, and likewise, in the church, we, we think of Stephen in this manner as the church is just starting. You know, it's, it's a fledgling infant little child and as they are starting off and new converts are being added and things are changing and it's, it's very, um, it's very unusual in some ways. And so what we have is unique and it's exciting. And Stephen is really there at the forefront of all of this. And we're gonna see a, a, a beautiful thing happen here in, in Stephen's life, even though he went and through the martyrdom. All right, so uh, we're gonna look at Acts chapter six. I'm gonna just read uh, some pas- passage here. And then I'll, I'll kind of talk through it a little bit and then we are gonna read through some of Acts 7 and we'll talk through the, the message. There's really kind of two parts, Acts 6 first and then Acts 7 later. Um, but we're just gonna give a little bit of a profile of Stephen and, and point out a few things for you guys as it's been something that's helped me think through a lot in my life here. Acts 6, it says this, in verse one, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. So the church is growing 
uh, in increasing numbers. It, it says that in many different places at this time. It's rapidly increasing. It says this, that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. The Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews, okay? So there are a variety of langu- languages would have been spoken there in Jerusalem. And there's the Hebrews who would have often spoke Aramaic and other things. And, and here are this Greek-speaking Jews. And there are these two groups kind of in the same faith, and yet they're kind of being challenged and having difficult with each other. Never heard of that, right? Yeah, in the church, that, that, we don't know what that's about, right? All right, so it says, by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up. Um, it, it's not right that we should, um, the 12 summoned the full to say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, Not that they were beneath that, but the fact is the church was increasing and there was a lot of pressures upon the 12 and they were meant to preach and teach the word. And so in verse three, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom and whom we will appoint to this duty. And so this is where many would say is the first deacons, the deacon ministry here at the church. We have an elder team who focus on the prayer and ministry of the word and the deacons who care and provide for the physical ministry and the needs here in the church. The elders and deacon teams that we have here at the church are very similar to what we see here in Acts 6. Verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Verse five says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. What a description. (laughs) A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit and Philip and Prochorius and uh, Nicanor and Timon and uh, Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase. There it is again. The word, the gospel is going forth. It's increasing and growing. And the number of the disciples, it says not just added, it multiplied. Disciples were making disciples and disciples were making disciples. It was a multiplication process. This verse seven says, they multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and the great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. So this is incredible uh, revival that's taking place. The, the spirit, the word of God is going out. And then let's look at verse eight. And Stephen, again, look at this picture of what they, again, highlight his character as. What is he? And Stephen, they say, full of grace and power. I just love the way he's described, both being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, this would have been kind of like the local church assembly of rulers and leaders. Uh, The freedmen would have been like a way, it'd been like a local church name but a different way to associate one synagogue from another synagogue. There's a different church name, uh, like Hope Fellowship Church from another church. All right, this is the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians of the Alexandrians, of those who were from Sicily and Asia, so a variety of other people groups, but their groups rose up and disputed with Stephen. They were arguing with him about different things he was saying and they're disputing his phrases and then notice what it says in verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which with what he was speaking. 
It's amazing. He was able to give an answer. He was able to reply because he was full of the spirit. He had wisdom in his answers. And then verse 11, and they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Does any of that sound familiar (laughs) from a few weeks ago when we were going through Luke? Sounds very familiar with what they did with Jesus. Verse 13, and they set up, oh, false witnesses, same thing they did with Jesus, who said, this is verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Holy place meaning like the temple, all right? Um, this holy place where they're speaking there. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. We've heard him say that. Well, Jesus said that too. He said this temple is gonna fall down and it will be destroyed. And Jesus actually wept over the temple and this was one of the reasons they were frustrated at him. and, and, um, And so they're doing the same thing here to Stephen. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw this. Now notice this verse is extraordinary. Uh, The council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Sounds like something your mother used to tell you, you know. (laughs) But this is a unique phrase. We'll look at that of just what in the world's going on with that, okay? So that's chapter six. Let's pause there. So back at the beginning, Acts 6, we, we have this uh, Hellenist versus the Hebrews, these two groups that are coming against each other and having frust- uh, there's miscommunication going on. Uh, there's poor administration going on. So the 12 come together and they make an administrative choice that we, in order to minister properly to the amount of people that are in our care, we have got to train up men who, uh, who are full uh, of the spirit or of good repute, who are able to, yes, um, know the scripture but also able to serve those who are in need. The widows were not being distributed uh, from the collection, from the food distribution that they were doing in order to care for the poor and the needy. Certain groups of widows were being neglected in preference for other groups and that is not okay. And because that was valuable and important, this deacon ministry seems to be born. And so I find it interesting as we look at the beginning and how the church goes about these situations and how they, well, they don't just throw one group out that you're done because you don't agree, but rather let's come together, let's work this out, and let's have a deacon ministry that is at the center of bringing unity to the church. The deacons often are ones who, who are, are, yes, physically active in serving, but are providing central unity to the church because they're allowing the groups of people to be having their needs met. And, and I think that's one of the main reasons deacons are selected here for unity. And so I love also as we look at this passage, this idea that church is growing as I mentioned, the word of God is increasing, there's multiplication going on. Earlier in Acts 2, 3,000 souls come into salvation and then others, uh, signs and wonders are be done, being done, the apostles are being arrested and freed, but no one, this is this where it's gonna be starting to come to a head. It's starting to really, the pressure is coming down on this new fledgling church as it's being grown and as the multiplication is happening, we see this, this beautiful multiplication, this increase, but the, the discipleship is happening and lives are being changed and, and people are coming into a fullness understanding of who Jesus Christ was. What an extraordinary time that would be, right? And sometimes I wish, I'm like, man, I wish I was there then, right? 
But I find it interesting because from my perspective, a lot of times I get, as a pastor, get to see behind the scenes and a lot of the things that are happening simultaneously within the church. And sometimes I wish you guys could see it too. I know some of you do as you're more involved in it. Sometimes it's just amazing to see a lot of these same things happen at the church. And I can even just say and attest to these same kinds of things happening at Hope Fellowship Church. It's just, it's really neat. I guess maybe we don't always talk about the positive things or maybe I tend not to, to mention all of those things and you can't really. But it's amazing as I see for over the last six years that I've been here, all the different lives that have been touched and changed and the transformations that have been happening, the people who have been discipled, the disciples who are now working in leadership, who are discipling others, and even those whom we have trained or worked with closely who are now leaving and going somewhere else around the country and are doing the same thing in the ministry working in the kingdom of God. And, and it's amazing as maybe one day when I'm, I'm old and gray and I can look back back and think, look at all that God has done. And some of you can see that in your life as you look back and, and a lot of it we don't even know of the people that are being changed and the lives that are being discipled and, and so much of what God is doing. But there are times when I get to see this person or this man or this woman or this family and their lives being touched and just transformation that's happening in them and a hunger that comes for God's word and a desire uh, to, to grow in godliness and an understanding of scripture. And there are, yes, ups and downs with that where you see people come and then you see people fall away and pursue something else and, and yet you find that in this is a beautiful sense where I can still see this mission of the church where you see the word of God in verse seven continue to increase. I've seen that here from day one here at this church and then I have seen that the number of disciples have multiplied greatly multiplied in a variety of different ways and even in Guatemala and Nicaragua and all the different places. And so I'm just trying to say for our perspective that I think this same mission and what we see happening here, sometimes I want to see the, the extraordinary experiences at times and I want that and yet at the same time I'm like, man, God is still working in these same ways as he's doing back then. He's, he's still multiplying his word greatly and that is something to be excited about. And so then we look at this man, Stephen, who, who, who he uses right there at the beginning of the church uh, to, yes, preach the word and be an example for those who would follow. And Stephen is a very unique character. He, as you noticed, was one who is full of, full of. It says that several different times, that, that he was full of the spirit, it says in verse three, and of wisdom. And then in verse eight, he was full of grace and he was full of power. This faith, the word pistis there, this, this idea of faith and trust in God, that he had extraordinary trust in God. And we see that given in an example that he was willing to say things publicly that other people weren't willing to say and he paid with it with his life, paid for it with his life. He had a, an extraordinary trust in God, a belief in the promises of God. Even when things were changing, there was a lot of change that was happening in the tradition there in the church, and he was willing to have faith to see what God was working through it. He was full of the Holy Spirit, poured out. I don't know if he was present there in Acts 2 or not, but he had believed and was filled with the Spirit, the pneuma. In the Old Testament we looked at last week, that's ruach, wind, breath. He's full of the breath of God, full of life, you could say. The pneuma, the spirit in the New Testament. And then in verse eight, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power. And I, I've, I've, I just started thinking about this 
this weekend, this combination there that I find unique, uh, this word charis, grace, and power, this dunamis, uh, where we get dynamite from, uh, but this combination of the two that it uniquely highlights Stephen, like they, they highlight this purposely, and Stephen, who was what? Well, you could fill in any number of words there, but they choose here specifically grace and power. And I find it very fascinating, and G. Campbell Morgan says this, that it's the combination of the two. He says it's the full of, if you would in our words, he says full of sweetness and strength. They're not separate compartments, but merged together. This grace, a beautiful, tender, almost compassionate mercy a grace of God's undeserved kindness and then also giving that kindness to others. And so it's this tenderness and yet, on the other hand, it's this power, it's a a vigor and a zeal and a determination and an authority that comes not from himself but from God and there's this combination of the two. Without one, without the other. This was not just a personality trait, this was coming from the spirit that I think it speaks of that he's full of these things, but this idea I think is also what we see in the life of Jesus. That Jesus was full of grace and power and I think in, we see in Jesus' teaching like what I taught on a few weeks ago, this verse in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where it's this, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Oh, what a comforting verse. Come to me and I will give you rest. I I take my yoke upon you, it says, right? For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. That is the grace side of Jesus. That is the the mercy and the tenderness and the, the loving father, the good shepherd, is it not? That is our God. He is gracious. The word says loving kindness, the steadfast mercy that he, and the steadfast love in the Old Testament that we speak of. This is the God we serve. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And yet Jesus also is very powerful and strong. We see him speak very boldly many times to the Pharisees and other leaders. And he speaks boldly to those who want to follow him in Matthew and and Luke and other places. He speaks, he says words like, let him who wants to follow me deny himself and take up your cross and follow me. Doesn't sound very lowly and gentle, take up a crucifixion item and follow me, like that's a big deal. That's a hard statement. That's an in your face, take up your cross. Are you willing to die and give your life to follow me? And so there's a powerful statement to, to Jesus and in a powerful way and yet a gentle kindness there that, and I think we see this example given here in Stephen even up to his last words which we'll read later on where even as Stephen is being stoned, there's a graciousness in him where, where he sees, he actually says, I think it is, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He says this while he's being stoned, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So similar to what Jesus said, right? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Here, Stephen says in his graciousness and his mercy, he doesn't act like the sons of thunder. Why don't you throw down fire from heaven and burn these Samaritans up for what they did? No, 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 no. He says, he says, forgive them. And then at the same time, he has this power to look up into heaven and say, Father, receive my spirit. There's this power and grace. And is this not what we desire to see in our lives? 
I think so often we have these extremes in our lives or we gravitate to characters that we look up to in whatever it might be in our lives that are gracious and super maybe timid or, and then, or super powerful in one way and strong and, and we get these, and I think in, in the wholeness that God provides in the spirit, there's a connection there. There's almost in that word meek. There's a meekness in Jesus that this aspect of being meek that you are, are strong but it's also a strength that doesn't need to be first place. It doesn't need to be in your face. It's a strength that's meek. It's a power that's there but it is also in, it's a power that's, that's governed by the spirit, a spirit of self-control. And that is what I think we're aiming for, we're going for, and Stephen helps me see that. I don't know about you, but I can talk about those ideas, but then when I look at Stephen, I find a, a similar aspect there of one who's walking in the spirit. And so Stephen is seized, he's, he's kind of arrested, and then he is, um, he, he's, he's accused of many things that he didn't say and then some things he did say and he goes on to explain as to what he means. That he basically, they're accusing him of, of you know, saying that the temple isn't gonna last and that the temple isn't where God is and then he goes on to explain really this amazing, beautiful picture of, of what the Bible is about. Next week we're gonna be looking at long story short and Stephen does an even shorter way of doing the long story. He does the whole story of the Bible in Acts chapter seven. I'm not sure if we're gonna be able to read it all, but I'm gonna try to highlight a few of the things, but I would like to just read it. In fact, the other, I'll I'll read most of it is what I'm saying, but um, I I saw a stat the other day that often it's kind of a sad state in America. It says often the only Bible reading most Christians do, and I forget the percentage, was in church, you know? And so I think it's important that we do read the Bible, but also this is something for you to study later on on your own. Look at Acts 7 and walk through how Stephen lays out the entire story of the Old Testament and how it all points to Jesus. And the point that Stephen is trying to make is that the temple, uh, the people, the Jews, the, the promised land is not the only place that God's glory resides. And especially in the book of Acts, we're seeing the gospel change and going to the ends of the earth. And so he's made making this point that God visited Abraham here in the beginning. God visited Abram in a foreign land, in Haran, in Mesopotamia. God visited Joseph and he endured suffering and hardship but even in a foreign land, God's glory was there and provided for the people of God. God visited Moses, he says, and Moses was was in um, Midian and in a far off place that God visited him and the glory of God resided there in a burning bush outside of the promised land. And then now for you, the tent, the tabernacle, as we traveled around in the wilderness, God's glory resided there within a small dinky little tent, the tabernacle. So this temple that God has built that so many of you are clinging hold to is not the only place that God's glory resides. In fact, Jesus has come and now the temple is within us. And this is the whole message that he's giving that that if we're not willing to let go of that temple, we're gonna be stuck in Jerusalem with the rest of our lives when rather in Acts 1-8 that the gospel will begin there in Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Stephen is boldly proclaiming this to, to a people group that is not wanting to hear this. His message is right up front. He is not really um, mincing words, but he's also not saying anything that they don't know. He's just highlighting aspects that they're willing to overlook. I think so often in our lives that can be it. 
We've heard some of these stories, we've heard of these things, but we're willing to overlook some of the things that make us feel uncomfortable. Stephen is not willing to do that. He was willing to preach God's word that the God has been working and orchestrating his plan and he has been working it through the people of God to produce this Messiah, the savior of the world, who then now has left and ascended but has left us his spirit and the spirit of God is gonna go to the ends of the earth from Jerusalem out, not just staying here in Jerusalem and keeping it for ourselves because we are the chosen people but rather spreading that message to the world. That is what Stephen is trying to encourage the people of God to do. And so we look and Stephen says, so like I said, I'm gonna be kind of jumping around here, but in Acts 7, let's just look at some of what he begins and how he begins standing up as he's accused, he's brought, um, and I guess I, I, I did say I was gonna say something about this idea in verse 15. His face was like the face of an angel. I think what we have here is a connection where Luke is giving to us a point where as he's before these people who are accusing him, the council, his face almost radiates like a face of an angel. It's almost like it shines. And, and, and so as it shines, they're linking this uniqueness as he's been accused of blaspheming a person like Moses In Acts 34, you can look there, but when Moses came down from the presence of God, he comes down with the 10 commandments as he's been in the presence of God and it says that Moses' face shone and to the point where he had to wear a veil over his face. He had been in the presence of God and he radiated light, you could say, in a way. And so what they're doing here in this manner is it's almost as if when Stephen's standing there is that he's speaking with an authority that does not come from himself, but he's radiating the light of God to all who would see it. Those who sit in this darkness and disbelief and rebellion against God must come face to face with the very person of God as it shines through a person, a voice, a man, like Stephen, and he's uniquely gifted in this time for a powerful message. And so, if that helps connect you to the Old Testament there, uh, we don't have much more time to get into that, but as it looks here in Acts 7, it says, uh, Acts 7, 1, the high priest said, are these things so? And then, boom, you gave him the mic, he's got the mic, and he goes after it. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So what's his first point? God's glory appeared to him in a foreign land before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred. Go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and into Haran and and after his father died, God removed him from this land into which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he was no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be what? sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. Another point that they know about, but he's reminding them that you rulers are getting too comfortable in your land. You're settling down too comfortable. You're not willing to follow God into what he will do next because you're in your cushy, comfortable little chairs, okay? And I'm only speaking to you in the red chairs, not the black chairs, because you're in the comfy, cushy chairs. Black in the center, you're much more closer to God, I understand. Okay, sorry about that, I know. Red chair people are all giving me an eye, and the black chair people are laughing, so this is good. All right, um, and we've divided the church already. Fantastic, okay. Um, But this is that concept, that he's speaking to those leaders. You're getting too comfortable 
Remember, our families, our ancestors were not comfortable in the land they were. They were called to be sojourners and pilgrims. And so, so he says in verse seven, and I will judge the nation that they will serve and the God, and, and it says in verse eight, and the covenant of the circumcised. Again, like I said, I'm going quickly here. And then in verse eight, it says to Isaac and to Jacob and Jacob and the 12 patriarchs. And then he moves into the second point where he starts talking about Joseph. In verse nine, he says, and that patriarchs, uh, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, right there, he goes into the story of Joseph, and sold him into Egypt. But God was with them and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And where was God with them? He was with them in Egypt. He was with them even there. God worked even in Egypt out there who made him ruler over it, right? And there was a famine. There was no food, it says. In verse 13, I'm skipping down. And on his second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his fathers and his kindred, 75 people. And verse 15, and Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers and they carried him back to Shechem and laid his tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver and the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And so he, he went, just went there from Abraham to the patriarchs, the 12 tribes uh, there who are kind of starting out their lives there in Egypt under Joseph's provision. And then verse 17, he's gonna transition again. But as, this time, but as the time of the promise drew near, okay, that time of the promise drew near, the promised land, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. You can find that in Exodus 1. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants, this kind of slaughtering of the young uh, babies. And that is why Moses, right, so that they would not be kept alive. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in the father's house and then he was exposed. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him in as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians as he was mighty in word and deed. Again, he's bringing out this sense that God is working through his people. He is providing for the people of God here. These are things that they would have known. And then it goes on as this lengthy portion. It talks about how God worked through um, the 12 plagues. He worked through in um, Moses' life. But before that, skip down to verse 30. Verse 30 says, now 40 years had passed. An angel appeared to him in where? The wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. And when Moses saw it, this is the burning bush, he was amazed at the sight. He drew near to look, and there was the voice of God. Verse 32, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled. And the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the feet, now get this, your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Where is the place of holy ground? Only in the temple? Only in the promised land? Only for the Jewish people? No, Stephen is saying the place of the the glory of God, the holy ground is wherever God resides with his people. And God resides with his people even here today in Jeffrey. This is the message of the gospel, that it is started, it is begun, the thread has come to Jesus and now the spirit of God goes throughout the entire world to all languages, tribes, and tongues. And this is the message that is being taught. And he goes in and he skips down to how your people, the the prophets and those have, have persecuted those who've come before. 
And in, in verse 44, you can skip over there, verse 44, and our fathers had the tent of witness in, in wilderness, this is the tabernacle, and just as he spoke to Moses, they directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua, then they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them. So it was until the days of David when he found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was now with Solomon who built a house that is the temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Look at verse 49. This is key. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. God is very big, is what he's saying. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make you all of these things? I am God. I am too big for houses. Now, he has directed them to build the temple. Jesus himself actually blessed the temple and taught in the temple. It was not that the temple was to be worshiped, but that the spirit of God that was in the temple was to be worshiped. But now the temple was passing away and a new covenant and a new age and a new time is being ushered in. It is time for us to leave the temple and to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. This is his message. He's saying, this is what God has been doing from the beginning. Don't stay in the temple. Leave it. Go and spread the gospel. And so then he says in verse 51, a very aggressive message, like I said. He gets tough. He uses a word that was likened to the prophets in the Old Testament when they didn't listen to Ezekiel, when they didn't listen to Isaiah, when they didn't listen to Jeremiah or Moses, when they didn't listen to them, what happens is they were called this. Verse 51, you can look at it. He says, you stiff-necked people. You're like, well, that's what it feels like when I wake up sometimes, right? That's that idea of the hard neck that I'm not gonna budge I'm not going to give in. I know this is true, but I'm stiff-necked and I am stubborn as a donkey, right? That's what, that's what he's saying. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. Okay, outwardly circumcised and following the ways of God, but inwardly not even close. And then your ears, and your ears are, are right uncircumcised in a sense. You're not willing to listen. You, and then it's scathing here, verse 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Just like they resisted the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, so now many of you are resisting the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit here in the New Testament. And so under the new covenant of God, we think of ourselves even in that manner. How is it that we are resisting the Holy Spirit rather than receiving the Holy Spirit? This manner is preached even to us today. And I would say in some ways, those be some fight in words right there, okay? Right? He, he is, he's not holding back. And then verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? For they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that is the anointed one, that is the Messiah. They killed the prophets before. They also killed Jesus, whom you have betrayed and murdered, he says. You received the law as delivered by angels, and yet you did not keep it. He is asking them to repent from things that they know. They are well aware of these things. He's preaching a message, hopefully, that this guilt will cause them to see their shame and to recognize their need for repentance and that Jesus really is the anointed Savior and the one that they need to turn to. But that is not the response this group has. This response, here's the gospel preached to them. Hear that Jesus is the righteous and anointed one, the savior of the world. Yes, whom they have murdered, but yes, the one whom will also be their savior if they would just turn and repent. And yet in this uh, great contrast, we see this message of grace, this message of, of truth being preached. And yet in verse 54, what do we see at the end? 
Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. This is gnashing their teeth. They ground their teeth. And verse 55, but he, Stephen, here it is again, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. This is just mind-blowing here. You don't really see this anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, it's just like, I read it and I I have trouble explaining it. (laughs) Verse 55, but he said, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man. That phrase there would, would have caused certain Jews to have their hair stand up on the back of their head. But this Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears, it says. They yelled and put their fingers in their ears. Okay. I don't want to hear it, la, 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 I'm not listening. And they rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments. They didn't want to get their jackets dirty. And so the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the man who will eventually have his name changed to Paul. And it's an amazing story and a little side note that Saul is there at the beginning he is complicit in the murder of Stephen in verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out as they throw the stones at him to kill him. Out of a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, the scripture and the language of the New Testament, he fell asleep. The martyr of Stephen. This is a challenging story. It is a real life event. He was a real life person. This actually took place. This is the faith that we share with Stephen, that the faith that we share today in the same God, that, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is seen there in heaven inviting Stephen to join him. An incredible picture as the clouds are pulled away. And the courage that we see Stephen exemplify in sacrificing his love, just uh, himself, just like Jesus did for the gospel. As he gave his life so others could hear the message of the gospel and so that he could be used as this, the blood of the martyrs that, that kind of in the sense that goes into the soil and grows the, grows the church for the future. Served God and it was difficult, it was challenging, but he gave his life and the Lord received him. And then we see this beautiful picture this contrast of those who, who chose to, to go after the message of the gospel, to, to stop it and put an end to it, and Saul being complicit in that. As he would say, this, the worst of the worst, the sinner, the worm as I, as Paul later on says. And yet, if, if the gospel can reach a man like Saul and have his life radically transformed into a person like Paul, who eventually goes on to write, maybe I think it is like a third of the whole New Testament, and is this amazing missionary who does exactly what Stephen is saying. Stephen has been saying that the gospel is going to go from this place and go out across the world, and Paul, single-handedly by the power of God, goes out and brings the gospel to the known world at that time. He becomes the missionary, you would say. Planting churches all over it and spreading the gospel. I find great comfort in this. I find great encouragement in this. That Stephen gave his life and yet it was influential in the person that Saul, Paul, becomes one day. What an amazing God we serve. And the forgiveness and the mercy that's even there present for a person like Saul. Complicit in the acts of murder and the persecution of the church to one day going on to then be building the church, growing the church 
through his ministry. This is a, a message that we need all to hear because <laughs> we're never too far gone. I don't care what you've done in your past. I don't care what you've been through or where you're going through right now. The fact is that, that if Saul can, can have a new heart, can have a change of life, a restoration, and a new future, so can you. And so can you. And that's what the gospel does for around the world to people of all tribes, languages, and tongues. And as we read last week in Ezekiel, as I close, it reminds us of what the gospel does and what the preaching does and what we're doing even here today as the kingdom of God is being built here in Jaffrey. As we see Ezekiel 36, 26, I will cleanse you, God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God and his spirit is doing that, has done that here within your life. And he is growing his church, building his church, and his message is going forth. And I'm kind of blown away at times that we get to take part in that. Every one of you gets to take part in this, of spreading that gospel message to the ends of the earth. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we're thankful, we're, we're humbled to even just take this small look at all that you have done over thousands of years of history. And yet, how is it, God, that we are part of this story? How is it that I share a history and a faith with Stephen, with Paul? How is it that I, Jordan, share a history and a faith with Abraham and Moses? God, it is because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Father, that he is alive. Thank you, Lord, that your spirit is within us and dwells within us and empowers us and gifts your church to take on this great calling. God, it's hard sometimes. It's difficult. And yet, you are very powerful. Give us that grace, Lord, that we need. Give us that power, Lord, that we need. Build your church. May your kingdom come, Lord. Let it be here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.